This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. Today, I'm looking back at some of the conversations I had on the biggest news stories of 2021. The year's headlines unsurprisingly continued to be dominated by the pandemic. Malaysia experienced its worst wave of COVID-19 infections from July to September, with daily new infections peaking at over 20,000 cases in August. The Klang Valley became the epicenter of the surge, with healthcare capacities stretched to the brink. In July, I spoke to Bu Sulin, editor-in-chief of the medical news portal Code Blue, on just how bad the situation was. The fact that the Klang Valley, the most developed part of the country, is facing healthcare collapse. I mean, what does that say about how we're dealing with the pandemic right now? I think, yeah, the, the fact that the epicenter right now is happening in the Klang Valley shows that we just let, we, we just let things run out of control. Yeah, that, that's basically it. Um, right now, the only way to stop it to, to, to cut the link between infection and hospitalization and that is vaccines. And um, we are now only, I think it's only been in the past few weeks that we've really ramped up vaccinations, which is great. Um, and I understand that the government couldn't do this earlier because of supply issues. I mean, vaccine supply is a real problem. And we did have rich countries, developed countries, uh, hoarding vaccines and vaccinating all of their populations first. And um, so this is something that, we have to bear in mind too, um, the fact that uh, rich countries could vaccinate uh, a huge proportion of their population before they were hit by the Delta variant. But the Delta variant has already hit us. And I think that could be one reason why the epidemic in the Klang Valley is so bad because uh, not enough people are vaccinated and the Delta variant is so much more transmissible uh, than other variants. Um, I mean, Australia has reported finding that the Delta variant um, can be transmitted in less than 15 seconds. And I think the, the reason why we got here is also because our SOPs haven't kept up with it. Our public health measures haven't kept up with the variant. So we're using the same tools that we used last year against an enemy that is so much more advanced now. Code Blue and other news outlets have been reporting on the devastating work conditions of our medical frontliners and the stretched capacity of our healthcare system. I mean, is the situation worse than we think? I do believe the situation is worse than we think, unfortunately, Shazana. Um, Code Blue posted three videos um, of really appalling conditions at the Klang General Hospital, where uh, multiple patients, for example, have to share oxygen supply. And um, this is at the emergency department in uh, Hospital Tengku Ampuan Rahima Klang. And they are in really close proximity. You see patients lying on the floor, sitting in the chairs. Um, the conditions are filthy. And those videos were sent anonymously from a doctor to Code Blue. And it's anonymous because of, you know, the government's gag order on civil servants. Besides the videos we've seen over the past few days, um, pictures of the conditions at HKL, you know, the patients being put on canvas beds uh, outside the emergency department at Klang Hospital. I mean, those are snapshots, right, of the actual situation on the ground. So it does sound terrible. And these are all unofficial accounts. The Ministry of Health has not publicly uh, said anything or even allowed the media uh, access into these hospitals to report the actual situation. So it's probably a lot worse than what is officially 
uh, reported by the government. Right. You mentioned a gag order. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? What does the gag order entail? How much freedom do they have to speak about their experiences to the press? Right. So the government's gag order actually isn't anything new. It's been there for decades and it's not only applicable to Ministry of Health staff, but just across board. All, all civil servants generally, uh, generally can't say anything that is not approved by their superior. So of course, during the COVID crisis, you know, the media, we do want to speak to as many healthcare workers as possible to get actual reports on what's happening. Um, but they are not allowed to do that. And the Ministry of Health issued a circular a couple of months ago. So again, telling healthcare workers not to uh, to be more ethical on <laughs> social media, so mm-hmm. to speak. That, that, that was what the yeah, circular said. But mm-hmm. essentially, we have a lot of doctors who talk to Coke Blue. They all, of course, have to only speak on the condition of anonymity, which I find quite frustrating, you know, because, you know, in other countries, in the UK, in the US, uh, the healthcare workers are free to speak publicly about what's really going on. Um, but here in Malaysia, they're not. And we're forced to rely on anonymous accounts. And I personally don't like publishing anonymous accounts because I feel like people have to take accountability for what they say. Mm. But in a situation, in a crisis like COVID, I understand that they mm. cannot say things publicly because if they did, they, they would face disciplinary action. That was Code Blue Editor-in-Chief Bu Su Lin, whom I spoke to back in July. The healthcare situation has thankfully improved dramatically since then, in large part to the national vaccination exercise, which to date has seen nearly 80% of the total population immunized. But the events in the middle of the year are a grim reminder that we must remain vigilant against COVID-19. It wasn't just our healthcare facilities that were in crisis, though. Selangor's green lungs also came under attack in September when news broke that the state government had quietly degazetted the Kuala Langat North Forest Reserve. I spoke to forestry researcher Lim Tech Win on the public backlash to the state government's decision. There have been other forest reserves degazetted over the past few years, many with minimal to no uproar. Why has the decision to degazet the Kuala Langat Forest Reserve struck a real nerve with people? Why the uproar this time? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The main reason is that we knew in advance, the public was alerted well in advance because there is a provision in Selangor to hold these public hearings. And so the public hearing, which was held last year, gave an opportunity for NGOs and the public in general to really spread word about this. And so people knew about it beforehand. And so when finally it was uh, announced in the day one last week, the backbenchers who raised the question, they they also um, were prepared and they had a lot of uh, rebuttals. Mm. It was unusual compared to other states in uh, Malaysia because there was advanced warning. Mm. And, and Selangor is the only state that requires public consultation on degazetment issues. Is that right? Yeah. So what happens in the other states is when a decision is made to take any area out of a forest reserve, they just go ahead and do it and they will make an announcement after the fact. So the announcement is made by publication in a government newspaper, which is known as the Gazette. And that announcement is final. Mm-hmm. So once it's done, it's done. Right. How much standardization is there across states in terms of how they deal with forests? Are they fairly unified or or are there distinct differences in how they determine what can be gazetted or degazetted? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, until 1984, each state more or less had its own uh, forestry enactment, which was quite different. But there was an attempt in 1984 to create a national forestry act that all the states would follow. And uh, actually after that, all the states in peninsula adopted that national framework. Suburbs have their own frameworks, but in peninsula it's more or less uniform. However, over the years, the, some of the states have have diverged slightly in that they've put in additional provisions. I mentioned earlier about Slangor requiring a public hearing mm -hmm. before excision. Well, that's something that was put in only in 2010. And Slangor is still unique in the peninsula with that requirement. However, in Sabah, they actually have an even stronger requirement in that any changes in forest reserves must actually go to the Dewan Negri before um, it takes place. And so there's this extra le level of accountability. And so if such a requirement was put in place in the peninsula, in, in states like Selangor, then the, there would be even stronger protections for the forest. In fact, uh, that, that is what I am recommending. Let me play devil's advocate, Tekwin. Why, why would or why should state governments do that if it means that it takes away their veto to determine how they can profit from the land? All right. Well, it's about the democracy and accountability. I mean, it's, it's democracy 101. The representatives in the day one represent the, all of the, the, the people. And if uh, the will of the people is that forest reserves are to be preserved, then the government really should follow that. Mm. Now, it, in the case, what we have in Slango is that there's the executive arm of the government seems to be ignoring the will of the people. And that's a really bad precedent for mm. democracy. That was forestry researcher Lim Tequin. Since that interview, the Selangor state government had announced that it would regazette the Kuala Langat North Forest Reserve. However, this has yet to be officially implemented. We're heading into a short break, and when we come back, we revisit a couple more stories that caught our attention in 2021. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. If you've just joined us, this is Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar, and we're reflecting on some of the major news headlines this year. There were many court decisions that deserve to be highlighted, from the Malaysia Kini contempt of court ruling to the corruption trial of former Prime Minister Datuk Sri Najib Razak. However, the case that gave me the greatest reason for cheer was the decision of the High Court to grant equal citizenship rights to both Malaysian men and women whose children are born overseas. I discussed the case with independent broadcast journalist and gender activist Temina Kausji, for whom the ruling has special significance. This decision, it feels like such a long time coming, and many people like myself are frankly just baffled why such a distinction between mothers and fathers exists in conferring citizenship. So why has the law been implemented in this way? Honestly, it is just the fact that um, the um, federal constitution was interpreted in an archaic, ambiguous, ambiguous manner, which resulted in this discriminatory citizenship policies. And to be honest, it, it draws from a fairly feudal and patriarchal notions of uh, male ownership over female bodies, bodily autonomy, as well as reproductive rights, right? So before this ruling was made by the High Court um, just a couple of days back, uh, prior to that, Malaysian moms and their kids were firmly second-class citizens, unequal before the law, 
uh, because if you do not grant Malaysian women who've given birth overseas to automatically confer citizenship upon their children, it's quite simply institutionalized, legalized sexism at its worst. Mm-hmm. Because the same completely does not apply to Malaysian men mm. whose children may be born overseas. No issue at all. According to the latest government data that we have, only a hundred and forty-two odd, which is only about one point six percent of citizenship applications made under this Article 15.2 from 2013 to 2018 were approved, while um, a staggering 3,715 of these applications were rejected, 4,959 applications were pending. Um, I think it just tells you that um, the, the, the demand certainly is there. There are so many uh, Malaysian uh, mothers who've given birth overseas who want to have a life, build a life, and have that um, safety of citizenship, that umbrella available for their children, but only 142 of the applications were approved. That, that, that's certainly disheartening. Mm. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you're speaking from personal experience. Um, you know, you're, you're in a transnational family, and, and this you know, the fate of where you were born, it, it's had lasting consequences for most of your life. Um, what, from, a, from, a children, from a child's perspective, I guess, why does it matter that a Malaysian mother should be able to confer automatic citizenship to her children? How does a lack of citizenship affect how the child goes through life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, just, just a little bit of background on myself. Um, I, am, so I am the eldest child in a transnational family of uh, three children. Uh, my mother is a Malaysian, uh, was a Malaysian national. Uh, my father is an Indian national. So basically, um, this discrimination, uh, Malaysian women themselves, they suffer it from the cradle literally to the grave. Uh, my mother um, recently passed on. Mm. And um, so literally from the time she was born as a Malaysian woman, by merit of the fact that she eventually went on to marry um, a foreign citizen and also to give birth to myself and my sister overseas, so that discrimination was hard-coded into her DNA due to the country's um, federal constitution, right? And now that she has passed on, um, I, as the adult child of a Malaysian mother, but myself born overseas, despite the fact that I've lived in Malaysia since 1995, Shazana, um, I, and I received my uh, permanent residency back in 2010, uh, I'm in flux again with regards to citizenship, right? Um, I'm also not a minor, <laughs> far, far past being a minor. So uh, when it comes to how it affects children, um, uh, I, I think you become hyper aware of being othered from the very earliest. You know, it's it's about having to apply for a student visa every year while you're still schooling. You know, um, you know, parents having to scramble every month to pay the high fees for international schools because, of course, you don't have access to the local school system. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm not not getting Malaysian rates when you visit the zoo. As a little one, mm. the laundry list literally goes on and on. But I mean, on on that's on the uh, that's on the more practical side of things. But at the same time, um, it, it becomes uh, it becomes even more damning as you grow older. Um, you also cannot access any scholarship funds for tertiary education. Um, healthcare might also become an issue, dental appointments, vaccination appointments. Um, wow, I literally, I remember having my um, second BCG shot a couple of years later than my peers until we could afford it at a private clinic, you right, know, right. welfare if necessary. So, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots that is um, lost in translation. There are a lot of intersectional lived realities depending from family to family. Um, the, the quest to find affordable housing. And um, I, I think I also wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, because 
of the fact that uh, when it comes to transnational Malaysian families, if you have a non-expatriate male parent, especially from South Asia, you also have added dimensions that impact the entire family, including racism, colorism, as well as economic marginalization. So these are daily lived realities. And I think the stresses of the pandemic in particular have really put a spotlight on them, you know. That was independent broadcast journalist Tamina Kausji. Unfortunately, the government has appealed this decision and the case will be heard by the Court of Appeal in March next year. Sticking to the theme of citizenship or lack thereof, a recurring theme throughout the pandemic has been the appalling treatment of the migrant and refugee community in Malaysia. In June, I spoke to Malarvili Meganathan and Wong Chun Ting of the International Organization of Migration Malaysia on media coverage of migrant issues. I want to zero down on um, recent articles, as you've mentioned, that have been coming out in the press that particularly look at the Rohingya community and portray the Rohingya community in a negative light. Why do you think the Rohingya community are the current targets of an anti-migrant campaign at the moment? Like, What is it about this particular community that seems to be setting people off? Um, We can go with Malar. And if Chunting, you want to chime in on any of your observations, uh, please do. I think the issue here is, um, you know, COVID-19 has exacerbated um, inequalities in our society, existing inequalities, and also at times um, manufactured um, fear by certain parties, especially those with power and resources. So what happens then is, you know, fear is often um, uninformed. And when um, some articles, uh, when they have, uh, they publish um, problematic narrative or xenophobic rhetoric or dehumanization of migrants and refugees, um, stereotypical language, for example, um, depicting them as drug pushers or addicts, you know, this could lead to further discrimination um, of marginalized communities, especially in times of a pandemic. One issue that I want to highlight here in terms of, you know, covering migration issues or um, covering issues around um, refugees is that um, it is important to look into pressing issues such as um, access, for example, access to education, health, or um, issues such as labor rights violation, unethical recruitment policies, human trafficking, or religious and political persecution, rather than focusing just on, um, you know, perpetuating discrimination or fear. Do you have any thoughts, Chunting, on this? Yeah, I think I think if let's say it's like we talk about Rohingya, Rohingya issue is not new to Malaysia, and it has been here for quite some time. And like in in many experience of the NGOs and also government experience, we have helped Rohingya in many occasions, and we even helped Rohingya in uh, in Bangladesh and Kots Bazar as well. So I think the the issue here is that it has been highlighted in the in the news. It perhaps that it is become a target as a scapegoat for this um, racist or, or xenophobic incidents that happen uh, throughout the world and throughout Malaysia as well. And and in particular for Rohingya populations, or uh, even in general for refugee and migrant, and usually this group of people, they are voiceless because they don't speak the language that we understand or they can't even understand the language that we speak or able to voice out uh, what is the perception they have or what is their uh, um, opinion they have. And often enough that media uh, hardly cover the perception or voices for this particular group among the migrants and refugees. And so it becomes um, 
the information that we receive, the public receive, is just one-sided. So it becomes uh, either per the perception from the public, from the media, or from the government, from NGO. And hardly we hear any voices from the migrant and refugee groups. We want the media to do better, but what about media consumers? I mean, the readers, do they hold some responsibility in, in what's being said? You know, I guess, what can a reader do to be more discerning about the kind of news they're consuming on migrants? Right. I think um, the reader definitely uh, plays a very important role because they have the choice to choose, basically, um, what type of articles they choose to um, read or um, the news organization or the subscriptions they choose as well. So they definitely have power in terms of, um, you know, what to read, um, when to read, all these elements. Um, so I think the most important thing they can do is um, to question because um, communication is not one way anymore, and that is for the better, for sure. So I think um, the reader um, or those who are consuming news should definitely question in terms of um, facts, context, um, the reasons um, or who's behind it. Or oh, These are the elements that um, you know they could use to critically analyze the news, um, not just passively um, consuming news. Yeah, I think one of the things that the reader can do, I think in this pandemic periods that we need to come out with solidarity with everyone and we need to read and consume and digest the news with kindness as well. So when we receive information with uh, hate sentiments or xenophobic sentiment, and this is something that the reader should be able to analyse and understand that in, this is not uh, kind news and able to actually uh, respond even internally or not to spread uh, in misinformation or disinformation to the others then. So this is something that perhaps individually the readers also can do. That was Malarvili Meganathan and Wong Chunting of IOM Malaysia, ending today's show with a reminder to be kind. You can catch all the conversations featured today and the many more we've had on podcast. Search for Pressing Matters on our website, bfm.my, or on the BFM app. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you continue to join us for more conversations in the new year. Stay tuned for the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.